Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And every fortnight I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I'm joined by Siri Zanelli, one of the co-founders of the London-based studio Collective Works. We talk about her own home, Upside Down House, which was completed last year. It is a refurbishment of a typical Victorian terraced house in London, which has been extended outwards into the garden, upwards into the roof and downwards into the basement. But what makes this design unique and special is the very bold use of colour for the interiors. I enjoyed discussing the house with Siri and finding out about what she learned from being on the client side for once and how working alongside a colour consultant helped her create this special home. If you'd like to find out more about Collective Works and their project Upside Down House, you can find more information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com, including images and links to some of the references in the interview. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Siri. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm glad we're talking today because I'm looking out of my window and it's miserable today. It is raining and it is very, very grey. Um, um, but luckily we get to talk about Upside Down House, which is the total opposite. It's full of colour. Um, and it, we're going to be talking about your house. It's where you're recording from as well today. Yeah. Um, but I just thought just um, for anybody that might be listening that doesn't know um, Collective Works um, and, and the sort of the wider projects that you do as well as Upside Down House, um, I wonder if you could just give a little brief introduction of just the type of work that you do and and what you stand for as a company. Yeah, we're um, uh, Collective Works is uh, almost uh, 10 years old now. We're London-based and we um, design for the future uh, responsibly and beautifully. Um, and that means that we try to look at uh, both our responsibility uh, in terms of the environment, but also in terms of ethics and our responsibility to our clients, as well as um, our staff and ourselves when we design. So we started out uh, as a flexible practice with um, giving uh, our people uh, a, a lot more flexibility than maybe it's normal in, in architecture. I don't think great creative output is done at 1am in the morning. Uh, so mm-hmm. we shy away from some of the um, working practices of, of our industry. Uh, so I've got two business partners because I'm an Alistair. And then we have got um, three free- freelancers working for us uh, at the moment. Um, we do most of what, maybe half of what we do is residential and domestic work. So quite a bit for homeowners, but also some for developers. And then we are involved in some community and education projects. We've done a bit of hospitality, um, even some large infrastructure projects. I think basically because we all come from big practice backgrounds, we kind of hold on to a bit of the uh, wide variety of projects. Like we enjoy doing uh, different types of work. Mm hmm. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of similarities here with, with me and Ewald and, and our business of coming together from working at bigger practices 
and and we've been going nearly about 10 years as well the same the same as you so it's it's very interesting to sort of draw parallels and differences but just the, i mean the name collective works sort of suggests as well what you're talking about in terms of particularly on the ethics side but also on the, the teamwork side which which I've noticed you talk a lot about in in articles and on your website was was that born out of a reaction to something that you were working bigger practice and you weren't seeing what you wanted to see in practice um yeah pro- probably uh in the sense that we wanted like real diversity in thinking and also being able to bring in people from various other fields. Like we worked with, you know, product designers on some hospitality projects, um, uh, industrial designers. We enjoy inviting um, other practitioners onto projects. And I guess that in many ways brings us to what makes Upside Down House also stand out is the use of color. And mm-hmm. I was very uh, open to inviting other experts in to the project, even though it's my own house. So I realized that I really wanted to upskill on, on using color. So I des- uh, decided to contact the best person I know that <laughs> in, in terms of color use and asked her if she wanted to collaborate and she was up for it. So I think that is something that is uh, quite uh, close to the way we work and we see like good things come from collaborations like often they will then lead to other projects bigger projects shared clients and it's a bit of a I guess uh, like an attitude of affluence like if you dare to share things will come back in Mm -hmm. one way or another and also it's a more fun way of working I think Yes, absolutely. But so with the color and and on this house, then was this something very different in terms of a direction for you? Would had you, we, have you done projects like this before, like this this kind of colorful, or was this something very new yeah, and really not challenged? As, not as colorful, uh, and 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 I think that was part of the motivation because I personally enjoy working with color, and I would say. I've always probably had it in me as as a personal interest. And then it it was when I was working at Rogers, I realized that color is a tool. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, funnily enough, I I came from fostering partners where all the pens in the stationary cabinets were all shades of gray and red was only for markup. And other than that, it's nothing. There's nothing with a color in, in not even a folder. And then you come to Rogers where the... You know the carpets are are um, are Eve Klein blue, and all the folders in in are in all different colors, and and you know yeah, it's kind of part of the uniform there to have a pink mm-hmm. belt and a green shirt and a, and, and and yellow trousers. Uh, so there, I was kind of in, introduced to I think a, a color as as a tool that architects can use to to express you know whether structure or space, uh, but I still felt that it's something that. I didn't have formal training in. It was more an interest. Uh, and then I, I, from following Dangini Turmanmu, so she's a Norwegian um, color designer and the director of Koi Color Studio in Oslo. I've been following her work for a while, actually on social media. And you, I realized that her skillful use of color kind of brought color use to, to another level. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm interested in this, uh, and, and and want to convince my clients to step a bit further, I need to take the big step myself. So um, so hopefully by by using um, color like in a, in a very consistent way in my own house, I could kind of invite people in and see, look what you can achieve with color use. Mm-hmm. Because 
all the walls and ceilings need to be painted anyway. So as as a design tool, it's actually quite cheap. You can achieve mm. a lot with color because I couldn't afford to clad, you know, all my hallways in walnut panels, but I can afford to paint, you know. Yeah. And is this going, you know, you had an interest in color, but I mean, a lot of people will say they don't feel comfortable or confident with mm. color. It's a very common thing, I think, with yeah. with clients sometimes as a reaction to just it feels safer to, to use white or to use a, mm. an off-white. Would, were you in that camp or were you already a pretty sort of confident colour user and wanted to take it next level? Yeah, I, I think I was probably more confident than, than average, but admittedly my previous flat in Islington was white but with mm-hmm. punches of colour. I would say that I got totally tired of the, the, the feature wall uh, and, and were, thought that projects where you've actually gone the full way are, is more interesting. Uh, but I had to also here think, well, it's only colour. If I don't like it after a year, we can paint over. You know, it's also, it, it's, it's, uh, it can be changed unlike a lot of other things. Yeah. But also, in hindsight, I think I've realised that by the time the decorator comes on a job, you're so exhausted by the whole process <laughs> that if you haven't thought about the colors in advance, you would just say, okay, you know, go with white or, you know, elephant's breath again, you know, yes. something like that. Uh, so I think uh, th- that is the learning that I took away, that you need to plan the color early in the process and you have the Excel sheet ready because then you just, you know what to do when you've come to that far in the process. Um, but there is no headspace left, I think. <laughs> Uh, when yeah, when the decorators come on site, as I said. So I'm assuming there's no elephants, elephants' breath uh, oh, in this in this house. Not a single that... surface uh, uh, white in this house. No. Um, I mean, for for listeners that might not know that, this uh, I don't know how international Faro and Ball colours are, but elephants' breath has become the kind of go-to colour and. Uh, I don't know how UK-based that is or how. Uh, yeah, I, I think I know. For example, they sell Faro and Ball in Norway, but actually, I've never. Uh, yeah, never interrogated whether the names are translated. Yeah, you know, what, what would what would it be? Elephantpust in Norwegian. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's really good advice because um, you're right. There's it's that decision fatigue, and it just wanes. And that you know, there's only so much capacity the human brain has, and it's gonna mm. um, gonna sort of fade as the project goes on. It's it's and it is one of those afterthought things yeah, or can and, can and often be one of those afterthought absolutely. things absolutely and i think for, for for every client that does a, a big building project by the time you're at decorations you just want it done you know you just want mm. to get the dust out and move in and it's often been a long always been a long process you know it's all relative but it feels long i think for everyone that has embarked on a project like that and then wants to get on with living there yeah mm. Um, and you're you're from Norway, and you mentioned I'm not going to attempt um, the name, but you mentioned the expert from from Norway that's yeah. um, in terms of color, um, and like there's often a very sort of strong stereotype in terms of architectural style. A lot of people use the term Scandinavian yeah. style, which ve- I'm sure very much pigeonholes a a whole group of nations and mm. a, and b uh, a certain look, kind of white walls and very light timber and people often use that as a reference for how they want their house to look and um i'm i'm going to sort of guess that that's not true at all I'm, I'm imagining if it was the reverse and someone said english style and what they would pick it'd be well that's not my experience of what we design um is color something that's used a lot did you did you grow up with a, a lot of color in norway in the home um, i think uh, I'll, I'll dwell a little bit on the scandinavian style because it's an interesting one for me because i didn't 
fully, I think, understand what Scandinavian design is before I left Scandinavia. Because mm-hmm. I grew up in, I didn't grow up in a family of architects. Uh, no, no, no one in my greater family are architects or all my friends' houses that I grew up in. But then I realized now that I grew up in a very Scandinavian design home. For example, all the surfaces are timber, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not from because my parents were very interested in design. It's because it's like a, a functional, easily uh, um, e- easily applied material. You know, you do all your windows in timber, you do all the floors in timber. No one uses uh, carpets. Um, there is a lot of uh, kind of that functional simplicity that I think represents Scandinavian design, which is not necessarily Instagrammable, you know, but it is minimal mm-hmm. and it is warm. But I think for me, it's, uh, more about the timber and exposed material yeah. surfaces and, and, and less about um, the color uh, or, or, or the white surfaces. Did I grow up with color? Um, I think not m- more or less than anyone else. I was one of, oh, well, I guess I was one of these kids that would always paint my room every other year or two and, and the mm-hmm. furniture and rearrange everything uh, in intricate ways. And I guess maybe that was like an, an early uh, sign of where I would end up. So, did you have? Have you got any sort of shocking, terrible colours that you did I use? Did that... have a bright yellow room uh, with all like deep purple furniture throughout some time. That was after the pink period. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, I've done a lot of that, and even at uni, like in 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 the, you know, we had big writing on the walls. Even there's always been a great need to um, decorate and change my environment. Well, it's it's come full circle because you've got guess, you've got a bright yeah. yellow room again. Yeah. <laughs> True, I haven't seen the connection actually. I think the paint, <laughs> the paint quality of the current ochre room is 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 better than what I had before. But yeah, no, I'm back to yellow. I mean, I had one where I was I must have been about sixteen, and I decided to paint my room dark brown. Uh, and I thought it was it was a sort of sign of maturity and sophistication, but it was just <laughs> awful. Um, so, so this is your your home. This is your yeah. family home, and yeah. we're we're in London. It's a Victorian era, Victorian terrace. Um, had you lived in the property a long time before this, or was this one of those kind of buy it and? Yeah, we did not live here. I would say it was unlivable when we purchased it. I think I brought my kids in and they said, it smells. I don't ever want to live there and kind of just (laughs) walked out. You know, you went, go on lots of viewings and they just want to move into the house with the best toys. And you have to Mm -hmm. carefully explain that it doesn't come with everything inside. But no, the, the house was, I guess, untouched maybe since... The 60s, we found uh, newspaper clippings from the Vietnam War under the carpets when we ripped them up. So it was um, an elderly man that lived here uh, uh, until he was moved into a home and we dealt with uh, his family in purchasing the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it, one of the nice things is that it's quite a neighborhoodly street in, in Highgate. And the house had so many structural problems that it was almost only us and developers that would dare to buy it. And then because he felt quite connected to the street, he had told his family that he wanted to sell to a family, someone that would be a part of the the neighborhood community, Um which is nice, and I think it says something about the neighborhoodly community that I still talk to my neighbors after two years on site and having dug a basement. And yeah, it's it was a messy process, but we got there in the end. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting the, the amount of stories you hear of when people are selling and how how important it is to them of uh, who moves in. And I've got lots of friends that kind of sit in either camp. Of some people think that's kind of astonishing. Of a house, it's transactional. You just surely you just sell it to the highest bidder. And others that'll be like, no, we want the right person to move in, mm-hmm. and we want it to be right for the the community. Um, but yeah, it's so. What what did you see in this house? Did it, w- was well, it a case I, of a value thing or did you just, did you see something straight away? It's like, okay, this has got real potential. Yeah, it definitely was a real potential. And I think also see that it wasn't delightfully refurbished as all mm-hmm. the estate agents uh, call the ones that have a lick of paint and a half naff kitchen and some, you know, roof windows that doesn't really do much. So we, we wanted to, we wanted a project and then I think it works much better to have a real project, not trying to rip out something that other people have done recently. You know, that feels uh, wasteful. In hindsight, I don't think I fully understood the extent of the project that I took on uh, because of the uh, structural issues with the house. But um, basically, we 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 the, the the valuation came in at zero because of the structural issues and and because i have you know had worked with structural engineers on many projects they were able to like devise a like a quick fix and sign off that it now is sound so that the sale could go through knowing that we would fully underpin it afterwards so what what do you mean by the, the valuation came in at zero so yeah, so so of course when you when you want to buy buy a house, you 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 have a surveyor come over to determine mm-hmm. that what you're paying for it is in line with the value of the house, and basically the value came back at zero, and which is I, I guess a a little bit of a case of a computer says no because it was yeah. a you know three bed Victorian full terrace in Highgate, so even the plot of land, even if there was no house there, would have been worth a lot more than zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess it only shows how important the the structure is for mortgage companies to make sure mm. that it, it, it doesn't have any problems. And this one had big problems because what had actually happened is that the previous owner had started to ex- excavate in the basement himself, so it had like a soil basement. Um, and a lot of the Victorian terraces have this open soil basement, and, and, and the soil is actually very important for the corbels, as in where the party walls or the walls that we share with each neighbor, they get like a pyramid shape. You obviously know this, mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> I'm explaining it for the listeners. Yeah. have a pyramid shape at the bottom, and that needs to be supported by soil as in the yeah. weight of soil. And he wanted more headroom. I think he tried, you know, the, the basement was full of ladders and tools and workbenches. So I think he is just trying to create more space for himself and not realizing that he was actually taking away what kept mm. the terrace um, up. I mean, it is astonishing, isn't it, that the majority of London houses, Victorian era houses, the, you know, most of the, the houses in London, I suppose, mm. are sitting on brick walls that go what about 30 centimeters into the ground they spread out by an extra five centimeters either side and that's it they're just sitting on rubble and soil and so this guy digging away at it just totally compromising yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) it's a pretty flimsy foundations that we're we're sitting on isn't it the same when you do the loft extensions and you open up and you see the ridge beam is like a timber that is maybe like a one by eight and then you have to replace it with a massive steel i-beam 
Well, I think these, I mean, these houses, they stand up. They, the amount of times we've taken up floors and things and we realise that the the bottom of the stair is actually resting on nothing, but it's the floor finish that's holding it together. And they hold together and they're really strong. It's just as soon as people like us come along and start messing around with them. Um, They're not not designed for that, are they? uh, The paint, then it all collapses. (laughs) Yes. Um, So did you, did you come in and know what you wanted to do? kind of logistically in terms of extending and use of spaces before the kind of ideas of colour started coming yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we uh, knew intuitively because the, because this was a very much like an untouched terrace. So, of course, mm-hmm. it had some of the wonderful qualities of the old sash windows, really high ceilings on the on the ground floor, cornices, um, you know, the, the staircase, uh, timber detailing, stuff like that. So those are the, the the qualities, but then of course it's also really narrow, um, and the plan is very deep. And especially the the existing kitchen was the old fashioned kitchen layout, where it's one very narrow and long and dark room, where you know cooking happened, and then I guess you know people were served in the rear uh, living room. So um, the kitchen in this house was exactly at the level of the garden and the garden was big enough to allow for uh, an extension. So when you came in, you immediately realized that it is the, 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 the ground floor kitchen that faces the garden that just needs to be completely transformed. And I've got, you know, before and after photos and it's almost not recognizable at all. So we mm-hmm. knocked out, you know, the long side wall and did a full side extension with a glazed roof to let loads of light in. And then also did a small rare extension uh, to create like a little, you know, a snug, if you like, at the end of the kitchen, like a little garden room. So mm-hmm. that became kind of the, you know, the heart of the house where I knew we'll spend most of our time down mm-hmm. there. And then um, we also, I also knew that uh, we wanted to do a loft extension because that's quite a straightforward type of extension, which mm-hmm. uses, uh, you know, the, the loft uh, and you get an extra bedroom and an ensuite. So this house had a completely unused loft um, uh, when we purchased it. So in terms of the, the kind of checklist of things that you can do to a London Victorian terrace, mm-hmm. Um, they're usually in this order. They're going out at the back and doing the kitchen extension, filling in the side and out the back. And mm. Did that one. Then going up is always the next one, isn't it? And going into the roof and really kind of maximising what you can do. And then also going into the the basement. So it's got it's yeah. got kind of all three of the those home expansion. Yeah, we did uh, things it. and that's why we called it the upside down house because we extended up and to the side and down uh, as well. Okay, yeah, well that down. was that's one of my questions that I've got <laughs> here is why is it called upside down house? Yeah. And um we, I was thinking because it's not upside down living. No, no. And no. I I thought it might have something to do with the color that it looks like the rooms have been dipped in paint held yeah, upside no, down. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And, but I thought and, that might be a bit tenuous. Yeah. No, no, no. It is simply because we we extended in all, in all directions, and I yeah. do tell you know um, a lot of my clients that know that we've done basements and think that it's extremely. I uh, best for us it became uh, feasible to do a basement because the house needed underpinning. That is yeah. very expensive. So then to underpin the two party walls would only really justify or to justify the cost of that it would only be possible by actually adding another room and it's also very important that that is a habitable room as it, it can mm-hmm. be used as a basement so the uh, the uh, controversial thing here was that then we needed a light wall to the front which is the ex- escape route uh, to the to the street um 
if you just have a basement with no windows or no escape, you have a very, very expensive storage room. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, some people do cinemas and things like that. But I think the, the complications far outweigh, you know, if you can go into the loft, that's a much better way of extending, I would say. Yeah. Mm. So when I record um, the introduction then for this episode, it's actually going to be very important. I would have said upside down house, but actually mm. it should be upside down house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's, yeah we, I think we actually kind of turned it into upside down uh, in the studio as well. Mm. Um, so tell me about um, how did this work for you being an architect? You were your own client. And I'm sure with Collective Works, you have... Um, probably now quite a well-honed process for for working through a project mm. did you did you do that here or it was the process of designing it also upside down because <laughs> because you're the client yeah it's uh yeah that's an interesting one we actually uh we did uh discuss the design um in the studio which i think is probably a good thing when uh, as an architect you almost know too many things and want too much and you know i i tried for a long time to connect the rear living room with the kitchen but the height is mm -hmm. too too much here because I, I do think connecting spaces internally can work really well in terms of like spaciousness mm -hmm. um but then i think it was like in a design review actually in the studio where we just discussed you know pair it back don't over complicate things and in a way i think um a good lesson for me is that you I've been like firmly in my client's shoes and you know that there is you know you want so much but there is a budget that says stop and no um I think uh what maybe the complicating thing is is I think when you are the client and the architect on site because my interests were of course a bit muddled so mm -hmm. in in hindsight, I guess um, choosing a contractor with better project management would have been beneficial because I ended up project managing a bit too much, I think. Mm -hmm. But but that's also a result of you know you uh, what I tell my clients you can only choose quality uh, time or money. So in our case, time slipped because the the budget was stretched, uh, but I wanted good quality, and then it took far too long basically mm -hmm. but yeah how long are we talking here we're talking uh almost two years i, I actually yesterday evening uh, i i asked my husband do you remember like the whole process so I, I actually wrote it down so we had the um the offer accepted in october 2016 mm -hmm. and then we exchanged in september 2017 that's how long the whole structural issues and discussions wow okay so I think that's where we had quite a lot of stamina. I knew there weren't many houses so, like this. Yeah, but that's the, that's the logistics of the purchase then that yeah. was really taking the time yeah. and really getting it over the line, which is why a lot of other people would probably put off the house then. Exactly. Hmm. And then we... Uh, but what we did, of course, I prepared all the planning documents during that process because I knew yeah. that you don't have to own a house to submitted yep. to planning and I was very well aware of all the risks and opportunities within the Highgate conservation area so I could confidently prepare that so we could start on site in May 2018 and then we moved in in August 2020 but then I had to send the kids abroad because it was basically dangerous to live here uh, but we couldn't <laughs> afford to rent uh, 
we couldn't afford to rent anymore uh, at the same time as we had the house. So we like, okay, we just have to move in. So I, we, when we moved in, it was this room that I'm sitting in that was, you know, livable. And we just had valuables in a few pl- plastic boxes, all our stuff mm-hmm. in safe store. And uh, and it's funny because, you know, you have these, you start on this project and I had this picture in my head that I would, you know, wear a nice dress and have a picture taken on, you know, at the front door, freshly painted in some <laughs> color, you know, maybe some friends would send some flowers over, you know, <laughs> that it was just us standing, you know, in the dust with just like, yeah, the valuables that we absolutely need in a plastic box and a suitcase for us to survive for the next, you know, two months. Yeah. And then we just ate out, you know, every evening and, uh, and had like a kettle in the bedroom. Yeah. So, yeah. But you get it's there a in classic, the end. Classic architect's own house story. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never know whether it's either, either very reassuring to know for anybody else that's doing their house that it's the same for architects or it's actually, very it's actually very disturbing <laughs> that architects have these issues. Yeah. Um, no, I, it, I think it's it's like construction isn't easy, you know. Mm. But it's important to talk about that because it is very, and I'm sure you're very much like that with your clients of it's it's preparing people for that. And there's a I always find there's this balance between optimism and pragmatism, and yeah. we've got to be as architects optimistic about how it's going to be an incredible house and mm. the potential and what we can achieve. But we equally have this role of um, we have to be quite pragmatic and quite cautious as well of don't blow your money here don't yeah. don't expect to move in too early you know plan the contingency yeah, um yeah, yeah. so Absolutely. it's very good experience i imagine for you to have uh, yeah, prob- yeah but wouldn't want to do it again <laughs> oh i probably will because i think that's you know i, I don't want to move now definitely not but i do think that you forget uh, and we were so um fortunate that the house kind of almost reached practical completion because there's always these last snags and this and that almost before lockdown and then we actually have spent the last year and a half you know really enjoying the house and then you're just thinking oh my goodness what if the pandemic had hit you know a -hmm. year before when we were in you know a damp basement flat of the smallest size possible for a family of four um, next to next to the construction site, and and uh, and in a way we were lucky. And then now, you know, when I see these, when I see the years that I list to you, I, I've I've almost forgotten, you know. Yeah. When when it's yeah. done, yeah. And um, so, you know, the building is taking a long time. I imagine there's you know there is that stress of of getting back in, but based on what you're the advice that you're giving earlier on in the interview, um, I'm guessing that the colours that was one thing that was actually quite settled and and ready to go and one thing you didn't have to worry about at this kind of stressful stage. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit then about your, um, it's KOI um, Colour Studio that you were working with. Yes. Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about that collaboration and how how that design process worked and, um, and what you learned from it? Mm. So for me, my collaboration with Koi is, and Dangni is her, her name, is a sign that uh, some, some good things actually come of uh, the time you spend on social media. Because I found her on Instagram and she found me and we were liking and commenting and, you know, chatting away. And uh, I think I, I've never, I think she's the first person that I met on social media that I decided to have a coffee with and like messaged inside Instagram, hey, I'm coming to Oslo and I've got a, a project that you might 
find interesting. Yeah. She said, okay, yeah, let's have a coffee. And I think uh, what attracted me to, to Dagny's work is um, she is, uh, her color palettes are complex, but still harmonious. And I think uh, color use can tip into like, um, like a busy uh, kindergarten Ikea style quickly. And, and I think mm-hmm. that it isn't necessarily what I was uh, interested in, but I also think that working with uh, complex colors require uh, more experience than I than I had. Um, so we had a chat and I think, so Dangani collaborates with a company called Pure and Original, um, which is a Dutch paint brand who, who creates beautiful clay-based paints. And she does these... Uh, example homes for them on a like a uh, uh, I think regular basis well she's done three now so she saw this project and I think you know a Victorian terrace for us working in London is like a normal house or quite quite a a house that we know well and you know we've visited many but in in I think for Norwegians and and probably many people outside the UK it's like quite a romantic building type you know it's the colored front door you've seen in the you know the I came to London I was like I want to live in one of those houses with a colored door like I've seen in the movies you know Um, and also because of the historic features you know the ceiling heights and and the the cornices and, and that so she she was interested in uh, my approach of uh, modern alterations or extensions to the historic building and also the that I wanted to work with a contrast between the the traditional and uh, Victorian interiors and then adding something as a complement but but not copying uh, the old which I also think is quite what a lot of contemporary architects in London do um, and uh, and uh, she was up for kind of joining the project so she came over to London for a workshop day where she came on site so this I think was in uh, in the early spring of almost like winter 2019 so we, it, we were on site but it was far right. from the decoration and walking through the rooms and I think one of the things also she said is that well, first of all, she said, if you want to work with me, you have to be really brave. So me kind of pulling out then, she she, she put uh, the line down quite firmly. And for me, that was okay, but I'm glad my husband actually bought into it. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> I think he's not an architect, so he was a bit more like, okay. I think also by yeah. that time, fatigue has set in for him after the many years of buying the house. So he's like, colors, I really yeah. don't whatever. care. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> And now he sits and does all his work meetings in the pink living room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, and 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 working with the with the colors with her as a starting point is that of course the people that live in the house need to like and enjoy all the colors. So we you know bring, brought all the big samples over, asked my kids what their favorite colors or what they would like, and then uh, starting to actually look at um, you know the the palettes of. Uh, of materials, timbers, tiles that that I had uh, chosen. So we had a, a workshop day in um, in London where we decided quite a few, and then uh, Dagny went away. And um, especially then, I guess it's the front living room that has the most uh, intricate palette. Perhaps uh, she worked a bit longer on, and, and and we discussed back and forth. You know, she sent me some suggestions. What do you think? I said, mm, happy with that. That one, I'm I'm a bit more hesitant. I think we're talking about like something neon yellow in the hallway at some point. I was like, that's no neon is too far for me. I want something mm-hmm. a bit more um, subtle. Um, but the pro, I, I guess I trusted her quite. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I did trust her, and also we 
we communicate uh, really well. So we decided a lot, uh, even in the first session, that we were working together. Was there, um, as an architect, is there an element of relief as well that it's actually this is one thing that, like, I sometimes find it quite relaxing. Like, if I move, if we bought a house and we've moved in and it's got nothing to do with me yet, that mm. period I find quite relaxing because if there's something rubbish about it, um, then it doesn't matter because it's got nothing to do with me yeah. anyway. And I can just, <laughs> <Blame someone> else. <laughs> whereas yeah. if it's a color scheme and you, it's mm. all you and you've like gone, right, I'm going to do yellow here, pink here, yeah. red here. Uh, it's a lot of pressure. Is that, was there an element of that as well, that there's a relief of a, this trusting yeah, person? Definitely. And I think it, 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 she took on the role that I realized that sometimes I do for my clients, you know, they mm. come and say, Oh, do you think, should we do this or that? And I going, well, there's no right or wrong here. You just have to, yeah. you just have to have a confident opinion. You know, uh, because, uh, yeah, so, so I think uh, Dangani's confidence in, in, in which colors would work together, I just then went, okay, well, she says it's going to work, so I'll, I'll trust that. So what was Dagny looking at as well as, I really like the idea that the children were involved and looking at materials and mm-hmm. things, but what, what was she looking at, at the, in the house? This is because these are things that people ask all the time as well in terms of was she looking at orientation and the way the light was coming in and what the surfaces were like as well and did you pick up on interesting things that she was picking up on being less familiar with um with a house typology like this yeah i think she was excited about uh, also color use in traditional um victorian terraces and and mm-hmm. um read up a bit on that uh and and I guess we all, it made me think of like, uh, I guess John Soane's house is one of my favorite buildings to yes. go and visit in London. And the color use there is magnificent, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, something is lost in a lot of the refurbishments where it's just everything's painted uh, white. So she mm-hmm. wanted to bring it a bit back to kind of uh, an original celebratory color scheme. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the cornice work uh, and the roses and things are painted in um different colors than the ceilings and the walls. Uh, and she even found a document um, showing how the different curves in the cornices were actually in different colors, as in in stripes, which really? would have been very interesting. Yeah, but I, yeah. I was mindful of the decoration budget, basically. Yes, like, yeah. The painter is going to kill me if we have like 12 different colors on one cornice line. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and then I think... She's also uh, I, I quite uh, interested in uh, color psychology and the concept of like warm and comforting colors using colors that are uh, um, that we find in in nature mm-hmm. uh, and 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 si- simple things like that yellow is a very warm and comforting color. So our TV room, which is the ochre one, which is like a yellow bubble, basically. Mm-hmm. It, it does feel like an ochre hug when you go in there. Yeah, and, and whilst yeah. the color is, the pigment is intense, it's a very relaxing space to be. Um, and then things like very dark color in, in the master bedroom to assist with good sleep. And I actually think that is um, priceless because it gets, mm-hmm. even now in summer, it gets, when you draw the curtains, it's it's like a black box. So, yeah. um, you know, in, in a year of... Uh, pandemic i think it's been a, a, in a good to get a good <laughs> night's sleep yes. um and then I, I guess yeah our our north facing rooms have cooler colors but um 
I, I think in this uh, instance, the orientation wasn't the, the driver. It was more like what will the colors be uh, used for. So, for example, my youngest son, uh, when he was asked what color do you want, he said electric blue. And of course, that's quite an intense color to, to put yes. in a child's bedroom because a child's bedroom is used for sleeping and play and later homework. Like it's quite a multi-purpose room. But mm -hmm. that's where we um, managed to add that on on some of the walls that cannot be seen from the bed. So it's like a splash of electric blue at the end of the room. But the rest of the room is a very calm, dusty green, for example. And this is the room where there's a flat ceiling, but then um, just by the window... Um, yeah. The roof jumps up and you see a little bit of pitch, which I'm imagining is a sort of, it's borrowing that dead space you'd normally have in a loft yeah. above where you get that triangle. And it's a really nice touch, but there's also a swing in there. Can you maybe yeah. tell us a little bit about that bit of space where this, this electric blue is? Yeah, so the, the, the space, and, and exactly as you say, so the space is borrowing the, the, um, the eave space from, from the bedroom above. Um, but, and the main reason was that when we wanted to do the loft extension, we, we couldn't, uh, there wasn't enough headroom. And we can't lift the ridge because of the conservation status and, of course, the roof mm -hmm. heights of, of, of our neighbours. Um, but then we had to have, you know, okay ceiling height under the, the new ridge beam. So the solution became to lower the floor, uh, so lower the ceiling in, 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 the, in the first floor. But, of course, uh, we've got original sash windows. Mm -hmm. So then lowering the ceiling makes the new ceiling crash with the sash windows, which, of course, have a certain proportion, so you can't change them but they also deserve you know to have nice frames around them because they're a nice historic feature so yeah. on on the street side where where my son's room is the the solution became to to lower the ceiling but only bring it out to about a meter from the front wall yes. so then using that dead space from the floor uh, from the room above kind of solved the issue of the crash with the windows but it also mm -hmm. added a fun space in odin's room and then when uh when we had that height, I was like, "Okay, we have to put in a swing." Of course, I mean, when you have yeah. when you when you have that uh, more ceiling height, then you can just do something fun. And I do think, like kids' rooms, you can just do something more fun than yes than usual. Yeah, mm. there's a lovely sequence there. I think of that in one sort of microcosm, you can summarize just nicely designed houses and how things come out of a problem. So you start with a problem: you don't have enough head height. So therefore, you lower the ceiling. Mm. The other, you then create another problem because you're going to block the window. So you step up the ceiling. The step up of the ceiling allows you to put the color in that you maybe weren't confident enough to have in the whole room, but would work in a sort of feature area. And then, as an added bonus, you get a swing. I mean, it's all yeah. of that coming from something that you could be really negative about and go, "We haven't got enough height here. This is rubbish." Um, that's a, that's a nice way of yeah. putting it. But yeah, it's very true. And I think that's what a lot of this working within the fabric of these old buildings is actually mm. about, isn't it? It's carving out solutions that will add something more and something fun, maybe, and or something yeah. uh, uh, or something surprising, where actually there is a lot of constraints. And so all these paints are clay-based paints yeah, throughout yeah, the house. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about you know your views on that, the benefit of 
of using clay-based paint? So, so the, what you notice immediately is the fact that when a whole house is painted, there is no smell whatsoever. So mm-hmm. then suddenly we had to use uh, like standard paint on, I think, some metal work outside and you get the, you know, the chemical smell and you're thinking, wow, I didn't notice what we were missing until we have a little bit of like traditional paint. So, mm. of course, the... Um, uh, the, in terms of us moving straight in and then not breathing in any chemicals, um, I think is is very valuable. And, and we've been working on some small like education and play spaces uh, and have been uh, able to argue for using more natural and clay-based paints in, in areas where, you know, decoration might finish on a Sunday night and kids moving into their uh, classroom areas on, on Monday morning um, and then making sure that they're not breathing in any nasty stuff. Another uh, thing is that I think in some of the quality, uh, in some of the rooms, you can really see the quality of the pigment by the way the colors change throughout the day. And I think it's most visible in the yellow, the ochre room. So that um, that paint has a, a lot, uh, apparently a lot more pigment per you know unit than some of the other ones, just because of the way they're made. And it, we actually had to paint that room. I think it ended up being five layers. So it was also one of those where you realize two coats just won't cut it. But mm-hmm. the color changes from like honey in the morning to like a deeper caramel in, in the late afternoon sun. So I, I really do think that um, they react to light in a more interesting way. I, of course, should do that Dulux paint match on a big panel and place it next, you know, inside the room to actually uh, do the test, which I think would be interesting. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean the clay-based paint. We kind of we both know the sort of benefits. I mean, there's, when you're talking about the toxin aspect, mm-hmm. uh, that's over time as well. It's not just moving in and as it's drying out. I mean, these some of these toxic paints are releasing over a long-term period. So there's there's a long-term benefit, isn't there, just from an air quality point yeah. of view as well, which I know is something you're kind of very on and and, and very into. Um, but it can be quite difficult sometimes that. Uh, convincing that kind of change because I mean clay-based paints the, I'm assuming the ones you used here are probably a bit more expensive yeah, than what you're going to be getting exactly. on the high street it, but it, builders it also expensive. whinge as well about uh, installing them yeah. <laughs> which is another obstacle uh, yeah, not it, whinge sorry not whinge if any builders are listening but you yeah. know com- you know I can understand but complain because it's a lot can be a lot more work um, yeah. and, and in this case I, I do think yes it, it, it was more work and I think and understandably, we've, we've specified clay-based paints on projects where it had been, has been valued engineered out in the end, and they have to go with a color match of, on yeah. the high street paint shop. And I, and I think I totally get that. Everyone mm. will be, uh, you know, the, the budget will talk in, you know, be deciding things in the end. So I think it's about, yeah, um, people's priorities. I, I do mm-hmm. think though that it, it does. It, it does certainly add value over time well, and also... Well, when you see it on a house like this and mm. and what you were saying about how... I liked what you said right at the beginning of the walls need painting anyway. Yeah. It's not it's not about whether you're deciding to paint or not. They need painting anyway. Um, why not? It's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the more talking about it and the more testing it on your own house as well it allows you to mm. make a more convincing argument for it because it's such a... 
dominant feature like when you look at this house it'd be crazy to cut the budget on that part yeah absolutely and i think actually it's one of the things that um allows us to not spend money on a lot of other things because yeah uh the the rooms uh we don't need much extras. We don't need many things yeah. on the wall or many decorative That's true. There's items. not there's not that much on the walls, is there? No, yeah. and so it's it's a way. It's like a it's a different type of minimalism because mm. you, there is enough. The, you know the the the, the materials, so the exposed timber and brick, and then the colors. It makes that you know it, 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 the, the rooms are enough. With that, we don't need to add very much more. So it's simple to manage, basically. And some of the other spaces, they're more kind of textured. So definitely in the hallway and I think upstairs as well, the green, the kind yeah. of emeraldish green. Yeah. What's what's happening there? What's creating that so different that texture? Is, so Pure and Original Paint has a, a, like a paint um, that they call the Marrakesh effect. So the way you apply that paint is that you use a, a, a brush, you, uh, not with a roller, but you uh, use a brush straight on the wall and then a trowel to kind of rub it in. And uh, that was chosen because of kind of the, the visual effect. So it, it looks a bit mm. uh, a, a bit busy. But what I found is that it's incredibly um, practical in a narrow hallway because the, the hallways in these houses are narrow and we're, um, you know, a family of four, lots of people visiting, you know, backpacks, scooters, bikes in and out. And walls get a lot of beating, actually. But because yeah. of that textured finish... It doesn't show. Right. So it's not necessarily more durable. It just it just hides yeah, scuffs. Yeah, it, it hides. Yeah, it is paint. So it's not so it's not a Tadalact finish. It's not uh, it's not toughened like it, the Tadalact. But it's and very it does look forgiving. it looks like a polished plaster. Mm. It's got a bit of a sheen to it, hasn't it? Yeah. So you get, and, and it is so it, much cheaper than a polished plaster, obviously, because actually I we got a, a painter to do it, but it's quite a low effort. Like I could have done it myself i did one wall yeah. to kind of try it. it it's not the high skill be- because it's forgiving you know it, it's and the builder's imperfect. probably listening probably listening now going are you kidding <laughs> actually um, i would say a pristine nice wall is harder to paint much harder to paint right than, yeah than interesting that. yeah because that's you know that's when you really need to be skilled and do the prep work and you know and i have all respect for good painters i mean i can tell a good paint job and a bad paint job you know it's very well the very painter different. here is um i mean one of the lovely touches you've got is the the edges of doors are painted a different color to the faces of the doors mm. which really kind of adds that nice um, yeah. pop of yeah. color so there's definite mm. skill happening yeah. here. oh in terms yeah of... the, the the last painter we have here was meticulous yeah and but in the hallway as well this certain type of paint does it have a benefit in terms of daylight because it's a lot more reflective than the other mm. walls as well and i mean Typically, that's a challenge on these hallways of getting natural light in. Is that is that an yeah. added benefit? I, I think that's an added benefit. And that's like also something that we I didn't consider, but it's kind of something that you realize happens and, and is a good thing. So we decided yeah. to put in traditional stained glass in the front door uh, because we needed a new door. And in, in the evening, you know, the, the sun comes through the, the um, colored glass and it reflects beautifully of, of that long polished wall. And we yeah. also worked a lot on bringing light in because as you s- rightly so, because the problem with these Victorian terraces is that they are so narrow and dark. So we've got um, in my, uh, in one of the rare bedrooms, we've got some uh, daylight coming in over over the hallway and then in the loft um, bathroom actually I've got a window in the in the shower so from the ensuite shower you can look out towards the east 
Um, mm. So you get the morning sun from one side into the bathroom, nice, yeah. and then you get uh, the roof lights to the west in the evening. So you kind of bring yeah the light all the way through. So yeah. that's one of the things that um, kind of those little little features that that add some spatial qualities in these long and narrow houses. Yes, um, I'm going to pull out. Um Something that uh, you say or Collective Work says on, on your website, it says a home should be the true representation of the people that live there. Um, I'd love to know what, what you think this, this home tells us about you and your family. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I guess it probably shows a little bit about where we're from or what our backgrounds are in the sense that we're very typical London family in the fact that we're quite mixed. So I'm Norwegian. My husband's Australian. We met in Tokyo where we were both at university and then both our kids are now born in, in, in London. But we have, um, my husband's so pleased that uh, he both has Australian green and gold. It's not yellow, you know, <laughs> in, in the house. And I think the Koi Color Studio was not did not have that as part of the design. Is that That's accidental? Kind of, that is accidental. <laughs> but my husband's very happy about it. Um, and uh, and uh, so I think maybe a lot of the natural materials and timbers definitely point towards Scandinavia and, and our time in Japan. But I also think so when of course when friends that know that I'm an architect know that I was doing my own house oh it's going to be like really sleek and really modern and I'm a bit like no because Mm. this is not a a you know a uh, you know ad agency showroom it's a home for a family who is really busy and and the boys play rugby and have loads of friends over so it needs to be quite robust Mm-hmm. And I also think, so there's a lot of, for example, inbuilt joinery to just solve a lot of space problems and, you know, the wardrobes under the staircase. And, and for example, when we did the bespoke kitchen, I am uh, I was very aware of that room becoming the one that we would spend a lot of our time in. And yeah. we're not super neat as a family. So we this, we've got these uh, inbuilt boxes in the kitchen island where all the stuff that gets dropped on the kitchen counter can just be pushed into so i know in my box is my key and my running watch and my uh you know the sun cream and the bills i haven't paid you know all the stuff that matters we kind of made some adjustments to where that could be because to think that will suddenly become neater and never make a mess that's unrealistic but you have to adjust to kind of how you are so I think that's in terms of working with clients is about understanding like what are their hobbies do they need somewhere to fix their bikes or to um you know uh, to have store their book collection or you know yeah. to, to, to what what are the specific things that this family do or like uh and and then designing around that I think works that that makes yeah. a home often work quite well it's not aiming for perfect living. It's no, because, accepting the realities of living in a, as a family in a home. Exactly. I tell my clients that we're designing for the rainy Tuesday because New Year's Eve <laughs> and the barbecue party, you know, that's okay. That That's when you can p- pull out a long table and you'll tidy up everything. But it needs to work for everyday life. Yeah. That's a nice, uh, a nice simple saying, the rainy Tuesday. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. it's true. A lot of houses are designed for those key kind of 
once a year or once a month moments. Yeah, and um, I, I try to pick out all the, you know, the wall-to-wall, -wall, uh, you know, everyone, especially now it's a warm outside, but everyone, I want bifolding doors from one side to the other. And I'm yeah. thinking that works really well in July when you want to yeah. open up. But actually... It, to make a like an extension work really well when it's cold and miserable outside, but you still feel connected to the garden, but you also feel safe and dry and, and comfortable inside. Yeah. That's, yeah, a different way. And you've done that here by, you've got a kind of box window mm. where usually there'd be that sort of literal opening and yeah. then there's a sort of smaller door, right? Mm. I, I think that's th that little box window, that little rare garden room or that tiny little um uh, rare extension i think it's the the hardest working piece of property in the house because yeah. it's probably so it's it's uh, less it's seven eight square meters i think but mm -hmm. we 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 start the day there and we end the day there like yesterday when i was you know reading through the questions that you sent over for this podcast i'm sitting there my husband's sitting there he's reading a book you know the puppy is sleeping on the floor the kids are in bed and that's just because it's small, it's comfortable, you just end up, that's where everyone gravitates to. Even when we have people over, they come in and they go dizzy, they go straight up there and they sit down and they're like, oh, this yeah. is a nice place to sit. Hmm. It's um, it's true, actually. It's what's very nice about that space in the kitchen, other than it's beautiful, as in the colour, the yellow that you're using, the timber that you've got in the ceiling, the kitchen, beautifully designed. Um, but what a lot of people would do with a house like this is extend across the full width and get the biggest footprint they can. And you've got an L shape here that mm. means you get a bit more garden. It yeah. probably was cheaper to build, I'm guessing, from a mm. structural point of view as well. Yeah. But in a relatively small space, I often find the struggle is people will want a space at the back of these kind of houses and they want kitchen, dining and lounge. Mm. And they, ne they never work because it just feels like one big space and you're sort of sticking a table in one corner, a sofa in the other, and yeah. it just feels cluttered. Yeah. But because it's L-shaped, it works great. You've, you've created these spaces that are just the right size for what they need to be, no bigger. So mm. they're cosy, but they're all interconnected. Um, mm. And it's true. Yeah, I think that's a real success of that um, kitchen okay. space and a good sort of takeaway lesson as well for other people thinking of these kind of renovations to their house. Yeah, it's, um, it's small enough. That, and I think that's yeah. we shouldn't shy away from everything doesn't have to be big. And I think what you said, you architects are so afraid of cozy, but we need, you know, cozy is great. Yep. Cozy is what you want a home to be, right? Yeah. And that little lounge at the back is not that big, is it? No, it's, it's yeah, no, it's, it's, it's about like, big enough for a sofa and, and the yeah, rug. And, and we, it, you don't have a table there or, you know, like a coffee table. It's like a tiny little corner table where you can put your cup of tea or your glass of wine. And then the yeah. window seat is used for everything from a seat to storage. My son draws in there, you know, anything. So, yeah. uh, but it's, you can sit like four or five people can sit very closely. So it's comfortable to have a conversation, for example. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and there's another thing that I've read somewhere that you, you like creating buildings that and spaces that create unexpected moments. Mm. Um, I think that's also a good one to sort of ask here of what, what do you think the unexpected moments are in this house? Yeah, I guess one of the unexpected moments is, is the swing, like the space that is the yeah. electric blue up to the roof and the swing. So, yeah, uh, or the... The, the, the window in the shower. So when you come up to the top, you can actually, you know, you can look at the sky from several angles. Um, so, so in many ways, it is about trying to make the space work really hard. And, mm. and, and, and occasionally also, I think uh, the sequence of spaces, uh, if, if it can lead to like a bit of an experience. So for example, when 
I had some people over yesterday. Uh, you know, we can have people over now um, yeah. uh, that hadn't visited before. And they come in and the hallway is very uh, narrow and, and quite dark. And then you walk down the staircase and when you arrive into the kitchen, it's like it opens up, you know, and, 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 and it's so bright. And the, the contrast between those two spaces is is a bit of an experience. So I think it's those type of things that everything doesn't have to be the same. You, you can go quite narrow if you then can enter into something a bit more wide or spacious. Or, you know, a plan can be quite small, like in my eldest son's room, his in his bedroom, we opened up to the pitch of the roof in the closet wing, and he's got like a bunk bed under the roof so that the floor space is completely clear. So when you walk into that small room, you know, it's got the really high ceilings. You know, it's almost, I guess, maybe five meters under the pitch and in a small mm -hmm. space and that's also a, a bit of a you know people going like oh wow look at this room yeah um then sort of taking a bit of a sort of sidestep but still in relation to the project but as a as a practice your signatories to architects declare which many practices are now in in the uk a kind of uk or international based um movement to be ad addressing the climate um emergency and um but also your one of your co-directors alistair who who i was at university with as well so we, we know each other but he's he's on the riba ethics and sustainability mm. committee um and this is something that's very important to the practice and you mentioned it right at the beginning about designing for the future responsibly mm -hmm. um and i'd just yeah interested to know sort of what's what you've been learning from these fields with particularly with alistair being so kind of embedded in the riba's approach to um improving the way we're working and and aiming for sort of carbon positive or carbon neutral development um on this project were there, th are there aspects that you you applied or you learned or are there things that you've sort of since learned that you maybe wish you'd applied because it's a it's a very now it's a very fast moving field and, and everybody's or a lot of people are working very hard to to improve the carbon carbon impact of, of development but with your own home i'd be really interested to know what what you've learned yeah, that, that's a really good uh, question. And I, and I must admit that we actually spent <clears throat> maybe the, um, a lot of 2020 uh, having a very serious look at how we operate, how we communicate with clients and how we design in terms of uh, working towards the um, REBA 2030 goal. So we were also part of um, creating uh, REBA's roadmap for change, which is how small practices can take a series of step steps to to improve their practice in order to actually um, upskill um, to, to reach those uh, to reach those goals and <clears throat> excuse me in terms of my own house uh, I I would say that a lot of the upskill has actually happened after we worked on this project mm. so in hindsight I can see what we did right and what we should have done differently. Uh, so, for example, um, we're focusing more and more on embodied carbon in our work now. And of course, as as the the grid becomes uh, greener, then then it is the, the the carbon in the actual building materials that is 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 more important to to keep track of. And the starting point then is of course working with a building that is already a hundred years old. And improving that is more sustainable than demolishing and building a passive house. So yes. keep, keep, keep. So in a way, anyone that works with upgrading and retrofitting existing buildings is, you know, doing the right thing. Yes. Um, so in, in this house, we uh, 
changed all the original sash windows to double glazing and we added um we thermally upgraded all the external walls of the original house um what i would have done differently now is that i wouldn't have installed the gas boiler um at the moment, of course, like every new project that comes in, you know, now we know gas boilers will be phased out by 2025. We should have gone fully electric. Um, so that is one thing that I honestly regret. Uh, so the so what would you have? Boiler. What would you have installed here? What kind of setup now? With yeah, the, with that? true. I guess maybe we would have done an air source heat pump and done something clever about integrating that in, you know, hiding it in some of the decking in the garden. Um, and then I would also have explored uh, solar, I think, on the mm-hmm. on the dormer roof. And that's, of course, one thing that should have been done when the scaffolding was up. And now it feels, <laughs> yes. now it feels, uh, you know, it, it sincerely feels too late. I do think, though, that there are probably people that can, you know, climb up. But you know, as well as me, how expensive scaffolding is. And that's why yes. those things should be thought about when the, yeah, when the scaffolding is, is up. Yes, it's mm. it's a very interesting debate. The the idea of the the gas boiler and the alternatives, because obviously there's the advantages of working and the benefits <coughs> of working with an existing building, mm. um, but also the the challenges that that faces. Like a lot of air source peat pumps are designed for, or they benefit a lot from very efficient homes. When yeah. and a Victorian terrace is not efficient, yeah. and to yeah. make it efficient is yeah. is is also a hell of a lot of work. Mm. Um, do you feel that it's I certainly feel that we're in this in-between zone, very much the same with the car industry of if you were buying a new car now, mm. I think a lot of people would be on a tipping point of, I want to get an electric, mm. but maybe the practical setup isn't there yet, or yeah. it's not affordable yet. It doesn't quite make sense, but maybe in two years it will. Yeah. Do you feel it's the same there, with <clears throat> particularly with boilers and with heating systems for homes? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of hope that from necessity there needs to be a new system that you can kind of put in in place of the gas boiler right but that Mm -hmm. will still for example we've got underfloor heating in the um uh in the extensions and in the ground floor and then i was told that uh actually the density of the of of the coils is different if you're going electric than if you're going you know with the water from the boiler and then you're going, okay, well, we're not going to rip up the floors. You know, that's just yes. not going to happen. But then I was thinking this is probably something that will be resolved in a couple of years because so many people will be in the same uh, situation where you yeah. have, you know, have, have a boiler that needs to be replaced without doing a full me- mechanical upgrade of the whole house. It's just going to be too expensive. So what would be your advice if somebody was doing your house now? Mm. Um, and what you've sort of learnt since, what would be your advice to them if they really wanted to 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 do this in the most environmentally friendly way that they could? Oh yeah, that's a that is a is a very good question. I think um, definitely try to keep as much of the building fabric as possible. Try to challenge your structural engineer to see if they can use timber instead of steel. A lot of, because these houses are small, you know, in, in mm. terms of spans, I think often engineers uh, are hesitant to, to uh, specify timber, but timber could definitely handle the loads. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, to use not mineral wool insulation, but rather use um, a natural, whether it's yeah, paper or, or an, a natural uh, insulation material uh, mm-hmm. will be more um, sustainable, definitely. 
<clears throat> instead of the kind of polyurethane type solid. Exactly. And, and, and this is something that we, I mean, we're, we're happy to speak quite openly about that. We, you know, we have specified, you know, sustainable insulation only to come on site and see that, you know, the builders have been to their usual builders merchant and just exchanged with what they're used yes. to using. And this is not because they don't mean well. And they even say, but it's got the same U value. Look, yeah. but it's just knowledge in the industry that we don't only specify because of the U value now, we also specify because of the embodied carbon. Yes. So this is, you know, and, and so we've realized that this is not only what we label on the drawing, but how we communicate with both the client and the builders on site to explain that. We've just done specified in a certain way not only because of the the thermal capacity of the building, but because of the history of this material and, and the yes. embodied carbon in that. Um, <clears throat> so I think those are those are the the easier wins. And then, of course, if you want to go a bit further, it's to do the um, like the solar modeling of heat gain uh, in the uh, in in terms of size of glazing. This is, yes. of course, a bit. Maybe more relevant on new builds when you're doing a terrace, you know, whether your garden is south or north facing, you, you can't choose. You just have to work with what, yes. you, what you have. But you can uh, save yourself a lot of problem, I think, with more overhangs in front of west facing windows. Now, it's our west facing window is the bay window towards the street. So the heat comes in there like crazy Which, in the evenings. And overhangs don't exist in uh, British architecture. It's always they don't, a, yeah. You know, so many of these projects that we, you know, I've had a lot of Australian guests on here mm. and and I think often it's sort of, well, it's different climate there, so that's why it's like that there or that's yeah. why it's like that in Spain. But mm. if temperatures are rising, then it's, yeah. you know, we should be thinking ahead for that because these are homes that are designed for the next 50 to 100 years. Exactly. And, um, but also, mm. I was thinking with the overhang thing, there's a double benefit of even if the weather is going to be rubbish, it's great for the rain. You can have the door open. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you can have an inside outside barbecue and not get wet. Exactly. <laughs> no, very, we're doing a, um, a beautiful extension to uh, to a listed building in in uh, Hartfordbury at the moment. And that's exactly what we're doing. So we're doing, yeah. we've done the solar modeling and gotten a, quite a beat deep overhang and the argument is of course that this also allows them to enjoy the garden outside when it's bucketing down which it often does and do you do this solar modeling yourself or is that something that you have a yeah consultant yeah to? no we we do some uh, some simple solar modeling ourselves as plugins to our software and then yep. of course on bigger projects we would get uh, uh, some engineering input um, and then on colour as well, if he's sticking with, you know, somebody else is, is doing a project like this now mm. and they're looking at this, they're listening to this and thinking, this is the kind of house I want. I want to be brave and have this colour. Do you, do you recommend that other people also work with um, somebody like Dagny and have a, a colour expert? What would, you, what would your tip be for? Yeah, I think um, unless you're very confident, I think getting professional help will always get you further and maybe even just help you make decisions. But also, I think the good um, paint companies, they create, they have a lot of skill in creating, you know, the, the beautiful palettes that we see in those little uh, fold-out color books. Yeah. I think you cannot go to your builder's merchant and stand in front of the Dulux chart and think that you will make <laughs> good decisions. You know, there's just too much. So I think choosing, you know, go to the, the big brands like Farron Ball or Little Green or Pure and Original and, and, and look at their selections. You know, they're very carefully composed by people that know a lot about, 
you know, what colors tonally go well next to each other. One thing is also it can be more interesting if you don't choose everything from one color chart, like there to break free and create some, yeah. you know, a bit more of a pop or a contrast. Um, I think um, painting big samples on the walls is a, an absolute given, and that will, of course, take some time, but you need to, you can't make these decisions based on the match, uh, uh, no, the, uh, the, um, uh, the tiny little uh, did you do that examples. here then did you do you yeah, have quite tests? well so we uh we we actually have in our studio and Dagny has as well you know the a4 sized color uh, samples yeah. so so you have bigger ones to to work with and some of the colors that we were more um kind of questioning or hesitant about yeah we painted up samples on the walls in the room so you could see how how they would look on site because i think the actual light condition in the room that it's in will yep. really determine how it looks and you sh- you you can't imagine that when you're somewhere else or in a paint shop or in your office yeah hmm. okay siri um i'm going to now go to the the questions that i ask all my guests there's three of them um i'm going to start with the first one which is what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home so i think can I choose two? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, one of them is that uh, we didn't have, a, you know, a Wi-Fi or um, like plug. We've got a router in one room. Mm. And now when everyone's working from home and even during homeschooling, I realized we should have just had wired Wi-Fi to mm. all the bedrooms or any room that could be a home office. I wasn't even aware of the trouble of Wi-Fi getting from our living room and then past lots of old brick walls and new steels and into the kitchen. Um, so so that is one thing that, yeah. you know, could have been simply done when we were doing the electrical upgrades and I didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's the challenge of the Victorian uh, entrances is that um, we've got a wardrobe, bespoke fitted wardrobes under the staircase but still, the hallway is like a mess of shoes yeah. um, because there is no, you know, as you know, there is no wardrobe space in an hour hallway. It's like it's less than a meter wide. So you can't put yeah. a, a, a closet in there. So like our new post is basically full of jackets during the winter. <laughs> so I need to come up with some slim bespoke joinery uh, solution for that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, the everlasting. That's the, the ongoing problem with Victorian terraces and. There've been some interesting solutions, but there's always then another compromise, isn't there? Yeah, the I didn't living want room to take smaller. room of, out of the. We've done that in some projects. Take take room out of the front living room. Yeah. But then we needed the bay window is very prominent, so it needed to be yes. symmetrical uh, on the yes. room. So yeah. yeah. Um, and then, if you could describe one house that you have visited that has really inspired you, and tell me why. Hmm. So I thought this was really interesting because it's you, you, one that I have visited, and. Um, I actually have had the pleasure of visiting a lot of really nice houses because when I was in Tokyo, I did my master's on detached houses under 100 square meters in... in, Right. uh, Yeah. So tiny little houses. And uh, one house that I visited was um, Kazuo Sejima's house in a plum grove. It's an absolutely bonkers, tiny little sculptural house where the main structure is thick steel. And... It's it's one of those houses where I would never want to live, but it's interesting <laughs> because it's there is no like compromise and the 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 amount of it's so spacious 
in spite of being so small. So there's lots of like double height spaces inside it. And like you can look from one room down into, you know, some some aspects of other rooms. And uh, also there is no inbuilt storage because the attitude was that you just live in your own mess. So there's like almost no furniture. So I think it's it's a really fun house because it is, yeah, it is so ruthless. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I wanted to also mention a, a fantastic project in Australia that we visited a, a couple of years back because the owners are um, friends, friends of my husband's from, from, from back when he was in school in Sydney. And it's a project called Lundesang by Crofi Architects. Uh, and the owner has bought um, a vast uh, uh, amount of old dairy land uh, a bit inland of Byron Bay in New South Wales that they are reforesting to um, old species of trees so into forestry and they have built a house a very modern house but that is nestled so beautifully in the landscape Uh, and it sits so that some of the like some of the walls are glass and then it's the external landscape that forms the solid walls. I recommend right. have a have a look at it. It's just it sits so nicely yeah. in nature that it's it's like a real experience to see it. It sounds like a future mm. guest on the podcast. To yeah, me. I think you should <laughs> I, I would love to listen to their story about that project. It's 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 really something special. Um and then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? I think I would choose Louis Kahn. I think some of his how detached houses in nature. I'd like one of the sites that come with his houses too, please. <laughs> so location and architect. Yeah. Uh, yeah great, yeah. great choice. Um, well, Siri, uh, thank you very much for injecting, um, injecting a spot of colour in such a grey and miserable day outside (laughs) Um, but it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast thank you very much thank you so much for inviting me thank you for listening to this episode if you'd like to find out more about collective works and about upside down house then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you like homes that have been designed with bold and colourful interiors, you might like to listen to the very recent episode 25 with Dab Design about their project Guild, a refurbishment of a beautiful central London townhouse. To listen to the episode, visit the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening. Listening.